Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 135. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Never mind. It is a true universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. We are privileged today to have with us an author from Brooklyn, New York, who took time out of his busy life to talk about his recently released book, The Apprentice of Buchenwald. Thank you, Orrin Snyder, for joining us. Hi, Steve. Hi, Becky. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah, our privilege. Yes. Uh, Orrin's publicist kindly sent us a copy of his book, which is not only well-written, it has a beautiful cover. And, by the way, the typewriter and the gun on the front both have special significance. The full title is The Apprentice of Buchenwald, the true story of the teenage boy who sabotaged Hitler's war machine. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but Stephen, I love the book, even though it's about a horrific time in our world's history. Oren did such a magnificent job telling his grandfather's tale of tragedy and triumph that it read like a novel. But before we dive into the story, we want to tell you a little bit about Oren. Oren was only 15 months old when his father died and his mother, Maya, was left alone with two babies. At that point, Maya's father, Alexander, stepped into a father and educator role. Oren says his concentration camp survivor grandfather began sharing his World War II concentration camp stories with him when he was five years old. Every Friday afternoon, Oren says, he would uncover another layer release another nerve, unveil another painful memory. Details of daily life in the Buchenwald concentration camp, mundane descriptions of a forced laborer's work shift in an armament factory, and stories about uncles and aunts who died in the gas chambers were as commonly discussed as the latest soccer league standings or Israel's soaring inflation. You were only five, Oren, when he began telling you his stories, and you weren't much older when you be began recording them. Were those audio recordings, and were those what you used to write the book? Yes, he, he started sharing these stories when I was very young. Um, I think that he, um, as an individual, was scarred for life from these experiences, but one of his coping mechanisms was his ability to shut out his emotions um, and, and basically have a very realistic and logical view of, of history and, and of his own adventure. And part of his idea of educating me and sort of building my character in his view was to share his own story, um, sparing no detail and, and really exposing me and uh, building my durability. Um, in view, in view of, the, of the family's history, and um, he was an entrepreneur. He was a businessman. He loved 
technology and gadgets and he used to travel the world and he would bring me all sorts of these Japanese recording devices they were all analog at the time and I would I would use those initially to, to record some of his stories and play them back um, again and again obviously those the original one didn't survive um, the recordings that I actually used um, as part of my research for the book were made um, practically decades later um, in the late 80s beginning of the 90s um, the, these all survived and are now fully digitized um, but this this has been a, a labor of love that spanned three decades wow wow fascinating as an author I'm curious about your process and I have several questions which you can answer in whatever order you choose um, I believe this is your first book did you take writing classes um, did you work with a developmental editor you wrote that your daughter Rio was your accomplice. How did she help you? So um, I'm not an author. I wrote a book, um, <laughs> and this book was was sort of what uh, was cooked within me, or had has been cooking within me uh, for decades. Um, I always knew that this is a story um, that I was meant to tell. I never knew sort of the media, the timing, the circumstances that would lead to it. Um, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, I manage businesses. My lifestyle is hectic and busy. I never had the time. And when COVID hit and we had to shut down the businesses and furlough employees and start dealing with the economic ramifications um, of that very, very difficult era, it dawned on me that this was the this was the signal I was waiting for um, to do what must be done, and it was probably three or four days after we had to shut down our New York location that I started googling um, writing seminars or writing schools or courses, and I found a couple of intense programs um, that focus on. Um, training on how to write biographies and autobiographies. Um, I took them on in a, in a highly intense way. I wrote every day for a few weeks. I had my writing um, critiqued by many people. Um, and I sort of built a muscle during March and April of 2020 until I felt, I felt confident enough um, to, I mean, to set sail and start reliving the stories, re-listening to all the recording and start putting it on paper. One of the first decisions I had to make was what language am I going to write this book in? Uh, English is not my my native language. Um, I grew up and lived most of my life in Israel. Hebrew is my language. I now live in New York or our family has been living in New York for 18 years now. Uh, but I still chose to write the book in English um, because I wanted to tell the story to America and, and to my fellow Americans here because I felt that um, this is this is the audience for, for the story. I'm coming from a country originally that um, is deeply immersed in the memory of the Holocaust. Um, and I felt that this story should be first and foremost told here. It is also being translated to Hebrew and will be published in Hebrew this year in Israel. Rio, my daughter, who is an ex exceptional young lady at 14, um, is American. She speaks much better English than I do. Uh, she's very talented. Um, she writes beautifully. 
and she had been my writing partner. I let her go over uh, the chapters and the parts that I put together, and she gave me great advice on language, um, on words, on editing. Um, and it was a very special experience, this collaboration. Uh, yes. Yeah, it would That be. would be. <laughs> that's great. And I read that the book was geared for young adults, and then I read it was geared for... Oh, boy, I can't remember. sounds like it was kind of two different age levels. So what were you thinking? So when I, when I originally started writing, my target was um, sort of a junior or senior at high school. So something that is highly accessible in terms of brokering the history and the difficult details and circumstances around that period. Um, because I'm, I'm a big believer in educating the young um, about this terrible period in history. But as I was, as I was putting it together, as I um, sort of showed the work to people outside, it became very clear that this, this is appropriate uh, for any adult. Um, but purposely, the book is, is, in my opinion, more accessible than many of the books that were written about the Holocaust with the purpose of achieving um, a level of comfort that allows people to, to experience the story, to experience um, the history without, um, I don't even know what word to use here. Um, so many, many of the Holocaust books that I've read growing up have been very, very difficult to read and they're not for everyone. And I think that this story is suitable for everyone. Um, and I think that everyone can learn something from the story, and it's it's purposely accessible that way. Yes, we can um, see through Alexander's eyes. Yes, his experience. Yeah. So that's excellent. Yes. You wrote this then largely because of the pandemic. Well, in that time frame, um, and it also had the pandemic had. Uh, a lot to do, I guess, with your father's death, or I mean, grandfather's. Uh, was he pleased to know you were writing the book, his story? It's a great question. Um, again, my grandfather was always able to um, to create a separation um, between the the emotional aspect of reliving those days and and the need and importance of telling his story. I remember inviting him to speak in front of um, my third grade classmates and, and teacher. And then later um, in middle school, he was always very, very happy to share and tell the story. He thought that it was very important. Uh, through the years, anecdotally, I would mention to him, well, this is such an incredible story, Grandpa. We should write a book. We should tell the story to people around the world. And he would say, nah, there's so many stories. There are so many of us. Um, it's just one more story. I mean, the, everyone has their own unique uh, survival story. The fact that we made it out alive means that we have a unique story behind it. And I always felt that each and every of these stories deserve um, to be told, deserves to, to be out there in the world. And we always argued about it. Um, and the last time we met in 2019, and I mentioned to him, you know, I'm going to tell your story one day. And he repeated and said, nah. No one's going to be interested, but I mean, I would love it if you do. Um, so here we are. <laughs> Great. 
Alexander, your grandfather, grew up in Slovakia in the 1930s. He was an only child in a well-respected, financially comfortable Jewish family. And he had every opportunity for what we would deem a good life. What changed the family's status and how rapidly did it change? Um, I think that the family was um, unfortunately living in a time and place um, that exposed them directly to the deterioration um, in a social structure following the rise of, of the Nazi uh, party in Germany. Um, and you see through the first episodes um, the creeping um, limitations on freedoms, um, ownership of personal property, um, ability to, uh, to move freely, to organize. And the family, an affluent family with, with a strong position within society is able to maneuver to some extent and protect itself unlike many of the other Jewish families um, in their in their small town. Um, obviously, all the way through the deportation, this one terrible day where a German Wehrmacht battalion um, arrives at the, at the gates of town and organizes a transport of all Jews, except for 10 families who are protected um, by City Hall and the, the, the local government. They're all deported to the extermination camps in Poland. Obviously, no one knows at the time where they're all headed. Um, but the family is able to use its affluence and influence uh, to survive. And during those days, in hindsight, the ability to delay the end is the only path towards survival. Because as the war went on and the German logistics suffered blows that eventually resulted in um, Auschwitz being bombed and a lot of the railway infrastructure um, going out of service. That, that's practically the only reason why Buchenwald was the last stop or Ravensbrück in the case of Alexander's mom, my great-grandma. That's the only reason that was their last stop and otherwise they would have been shipped to the uh, extermination camps and gassed um, like many of their aunts, uncles, uh, nephews, nieces, cousins. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> okay, you just answered our next question. <laughs> yeah, good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve and I are going to switch now. You can you can ask that next one. Oh, well. Okay. Alexander's mother, Irina, was sent to a women's concentration camp, but Alexander and his father, Solomon, somehow managed to stay together throughout their cruel imprisonment. Would you say that's a key reason they managed to survive the lack of food, horrendous living conditions, and back-breaking work, as well as the frigid, frigid German winters? I'm sure it's part of the answer, yes. I think that um, their commitment to one another, uh, the knowledge that um, they have a responsibility not only to survive or to maintain their own life, but that the, the person that they care most about in the world is, is next to them and going through such hardship um, gave them another reason to wake up in the morning and um, maintain their resolve and determination to survive. Um, and that created a unique bond between father and son 
for years to come throughout the duration of their lives and both both men lived um to a to a, a an old an older age they they both passed away in their 90s and they've always had that bond um something i guess that it, and no one no one else could understand i mean none of us has the intellectual ability to truly understand what it means to to live in in subhuman conditions uh, such as the ones that were offered uh, to the inmates in, at Buchenwald um they survived the tell and, and they they tried living a normal life in the life afterwards yeah well <laughs> that's that's in a sense it's just really sweet that they had that bond but well, what a way to forge yeah. it um, we have asked Oren to read a selection from his book later in the podcast, but right now Steve is going to read a short excerpt, which gives an idea of the father-son bond that Oren just mentioned, and their determination to survive together. It begins with Alexander's father, Solomon, speaking. Listen to me. If we don't handle ourselves smartly in the coming hours, the cold will kill us. We must sleep, and at the same time, we must make sure we don't freeze in the snow. How do we do that? We will take shifts sleeping on the wooden plate. The person awake will have to continuously rub the sleeping person's body, head to toe, so we both don't freeze. It's critically important that you don't fall asleep during your shift, or we will both turn to icicles. It was the longest night. We changed roles three times during that night, each of us getting two sessions of sleep. My last shift was much less stressful, and I felt my heartbeat settling down. I was looking around as my hands were rubbing his body. Seemingly, except for me, only the guards on the surrounding watchtowers were awake. The entire camp and bordering nature world were motionless and muted. Uh, Becky and I have lived in snow country most of our marriage. Um, big, big snowstorms. <laughs> uh, uh, I cannot fathom sleeping outside in the winter without even a sleeping bag. If I remember the story right, the prisoners were never issued coats or gloves or boots, and their yeah. shorts and pants, uh, shirts and pants were threadbare. Not near yeah. the end of the book. You talk about your own eye-opening experience in a cold, abandoned concentration camp. Would you mind telling us about that and even comment about the issuing of clothes or whatever there? Yeah, that's that's a, that's an incredible observation. And um, I mean, you hear so many stories from survivors and you read the books, but it rarely becomes a sensual experience. And... I mean, telling the stories about days and nights at camp, my grandfather would laconically comment about the, the thin shirt and the thin pair of pants um, and the wooden sole shoes that he was wearing and sort of add that it was freezing temperatures and it was snowing and it's, it's sort of difficult to intellectually connect the dots. But as a teenager, when I was visiting the extermination camps in Poland, um this is something that I felt and it 
it connected me emotionally in a way that I never connected, even after listening to my grandfather's stories. And I was wearing my warmest, best coat, walking around Majdanek, um, the Polish camp. It was freezing. I was, I mean, my my, my lips were, were were becoming blue, and mm. all of a sudden, you you look at the the remaining articles owned by the inmates uh, who were gassed to death at camp and you feel the freezing cold and you sort of start um, to physically experience uh, what they were going through in addition to um, the violent, violent behavior by the Nazi um, by the Nazis in the camp and it's it's just an overwhelming experience well um, I think that enabled you to uh, uh, include the emotion in the book yeah. and details that might have been um, difficult for you if you hadn't experienced that. So yes. You have an amazing Absolutely. heritage. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do Thank you. believe you have an amazing heritage and it's painful, but it's very rich. And you wrote that your grandfather, Alexander, was an incredibly optimistic man, despite all. Yet you also wrote that he remained a camp prisoner until his last day. Can you explain that dichotomy for your listeners, our listeners? Um, it's very difficult to dissect my grandfather's personality. He was smart, full of energy, entrepreneurial, always looking for the next big idea and the next business he was going to start. And when you read the book, you, you sort of actually understand the origins. I mean, his father was a trader. His grandfather was a trader. He was born to a, a family of traders. So he had this entrepreneurial spirit. And in many ways, entrepreneur, entrepreneurs are uh, the quintessential optimists. And he's always been that way. That's, that was how he started. <laughs> and he always looked at his survival experience in many ways as a, as a successful entrepreneurial adventure so against all odds he made it out against all odds he found his father and he saved him and against all, all odds he got reunited with his mother after the war so he he chose to to really focus on the positive outcome of this terrible terrible ordeal and it was the basis of his lifelong philosophy that looked at life as the best thing and forced him and his family members to only focus on the good on the good things in life and be extremely proactive about your own destiny and about um, your life. And I think that our entire family is um, taking signals from, from his views and his philosophy. And, and this is something amazing that he, that he gave all of us. This would be a great time for you to read from your book, The Apprentice of Buchenwald, for our listeners. I would love to. Um, yeah, we I'll should have said, the... would, you, would you please? Oh, yeah, pretty please. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to read the, the part that I think was the most traumatic for him. Um, sorry, one of, more, one of the more difficult scenes in the book itself and towards the end of his life when he was reliving some of the horror some of the pictures when so he was having dreams or nightmares this was the this was the piece this was the day this was the time that came back to him and haunted him um 
I was awakened early on a sunny day by a loud knocking on the front door. It was a damn day. None of us will ever forget. It was May 5th, 1942. Father opened the door and Franz the mayor walked in hastily. Zoli, apologies for the early hour interruption. For a long time, I feared this day would come. I wanted to personally let you know that the last, that late last night, a German army battalion arrived and is now camped at the main entrance to town. We just received orders to gather all Jewish families and march them through Main Street to the train station entrance this morning. He paused and added, train cars are ready and waiting at the station for the families and they will be heading north this evening, Poland. He then said that the local SS field commander has granted the town leadership the prerogative to name 10 Jewish families that were essential to the economy and would be spared deportation and allowed to remain in town unharmed. The mayor himself compiled the list and our family was included as one of the 10. He repeatedly asked my father not to worry. Mom was standing next to me at the edge of the stairway on the second floor and we were listening to the conversation. Whatever you do, Zoli, do not leave the house today. Tell Irena and your boy not to go out. If anyone comes knocking, especially the Germans, show them the white certificate and ask them to speak with me. I will be at the train station all morning. Father hadn't muttered a single word. I will be attaching this official notice to your front door to inform the SS that the residents of this house are not candidates for deportation and that you should not be taken to the train station. Franz left as swiftly as he came in. It felt as if all the oxygen had been sucked out of our home instantaneously. Father was left frozen, holding onto the front doorknob. Mom was sitting on the floor next to me, staring at the brick wall. Well, that is an overwhelming story. Yeah. And, and you... You described the um, moment my moment experience um, very well. I can't, ima- can't imagine the horror, but it's interesting to me that your grandfather, um, that was one of his later really strong memories. And you said he had nightmares about that? Yes, I think that I'll, I'll add another paragraph just on the next page to, to sort of link it to the comment about nightmares. Um, it goes like this. Our house was situated right on Main Street, but our unit did not have any windows facing the street itself. I decided to climb up to the roof. The scenes from that morning will forever be carved in my memory, as much as I try to eradicate them. A line of people was progressing slowly towards the train station. Among them were friends from my school, my teachers, our baker and his family, our family doctor and his family, families with babies, young children, women and men, young and old, walking along in straight, orderly line through the streets, down to the station, carrying suitcases and bags. They just kept on coming. German soldiers made sure no one broke rank. They were all walking peacefully and quietly at a slow and constant pace. My heart was pounding. I was completely, it was completely surreal. Oh. And I think that's the that's the picture that kept coming back. Um, it was his friends, and it was the people that he grew up uh, with. And at that moment, 
it was a, a unique and strange situation where he saw these people that he knew just walking in a straight line towards a train station. No one had any idea where they're all going. No one had heard uh, the term extermination camp or a gas chamber. No one understood the final solution. Mm-hmm. No one figured out the fact that there was a systemic um, extermination of a people, of a community that was that was going on. Um, so these were things that they... They sort of the dots that they they connected only after their survival, only after the war, um, when they also learned that their entire family that lived um, in the region and cities and towns around were all part of those deportations, and they would not come back from Poland. Mm-hmm. So unlike um, us Americans sitting in our easy chair watching a documentary. Uh, your grandfather firsthand experienced that sight of not just some people being herded by the Nazis, but people he knew and loved. Yeah. No wonder that was forever in his memory. So I have one last question. I'm a member of a women's Bible study group that recently studied the life of Abraham and other patriarchs of God's chosen people, the Israelites, or as they are known today, the Hebrews or the Jews. And you wrote that Alexander's parents considered themselves atheists, but I can't help but wonder if they ever cried out to the God of their people during those desperate times. I also wonder if your grandfather Alexander ever mentioned God when he was recounting his stories or even later in his life? He used the, the term God a lot, but he had his own interpretation um, of what God meant to him. And the phrase he most commonly used was, and I'm doing a, uh, a free translation from Hebrew. In Hebrew it says, Azola Elohim If you help yourself, God will help you. And for him, everything started from the belief in oneself, in one's capabilities, and the proactive nature of of self-support, of self-help. And so he evidently passed along his philosophy to the rest of the family. Absolutely. I mean, we, as as you, I'm sure, read in the first chapter, he was he was a grandson of a of a well-known ultra-orthodox rabbi. Eastern Europe, um, Rabbi Solomon um, Rabbi Solomon Rosenberg was the, the great grandson of, and many of his uncles were extremely orthodox um, and spent their lives um, studying the Talmud and the Bible. His father and grandfather were the the traitors of the family uh, who supported many of the many of the orthodox students as part of their work. Many of the Jewish families in that generation really separated to the scholars and the traders and he was he was born to the uh, the traders branch I have a, a question for you Oren I read Victor Frankl's book you're probably familiar with with his work a man's search for meaning uh, he was in a concentration camp and mm-hmm. came through it there's one sentence if you care to comment on it, I want your, I just wonder about your take on it. He writes, 
Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. Wow. That is, that is a deep sentiment. Um, I think it's, it's, it's rather difficult to connect um, to, a, to a dark sentiment such as that, living a pampered, easy, and comfortable life in New York in 2023. <laughs> um, but I must say that, again, knowing my grandfather's and my family's path, for people who survived um, hell on earth, they they needed to find anything a belief um a thought a mantra to hold on to to allow them to continue living i know that many of the survivors um committed suicide ended their own life just because they couldn't find the strength um to continue and hold on and i think that i mean that sentiment that you read sounds consistent or feels consistent with sentiments that I've heard from other survivors like my grandfather who had to develop a life philosophy that allowed them to comprehend and grasp the experience and the trials that they went through in order to continue and rebuild their lives. Uh, okay. Uh, and, go ahead. And I think that's what we humans do. <laughs> we... Uh, and trauma probably, uh, what's the word, makes us bring into perspective life in general. That we, you know, like you say, when we have that easy American life, uh, we don't have to think so much about what is life all about, I guess. Right. I think tougher times are coming, though. We... <laughs> We may see something. I, I, I tend to agree with you, but I hope not as tough as those times. Yes. yes. Oh, well, in sure. Turkey in that region right now, <laughs> they're feeling oh, the tough so times. Hard, so heartbreaking. It's so terrible. Oh, it is. Just hard to comprehend. Yeah. So, Oren, that's kind of the list of our questions. Um, anything else you would like to mention? Uh, we'll talk about your website, etc., in a little bit, but... Um, just any uh, more about your experience with your grandfather and how it's changed you? Um, I think that the, the other element um, that is closely linked to the writing of the book is the fact that I did a lot of research over the last few years leading towards the, the writing of the book. And I discovered many family members I never knew were alive. Um, living here in this country. There were the family trees of uncles uh, and great uncles that left before the Second World War, most of them either during World War One or between the wars. Um, and again, being raised in Israel, growing up in Israel, the Jewish state, we heard very little about Jewish communities overseas. And part of um, the amazing journey that I went through during these years was to learn more about life um, and fate of family members um, who we never knew existed that lived a parallel life to ours in Israel in the United States. So it taught me a lot about the community in the U.S. It was very, very different in its community life and its 
and its view of the world than the one that I lived in the States. And again, philosophically, you see a set of eight brothers and sisters in 1905 or 1908 in the Czechoslovakian town just separating, um, going to different sides of the Atlantic and experiencing extremely different outcomes, uh, some extremely tragic, some extremely positive, um, with no way to, to assess or estimate that when we're making the decisions. And I think that's um, these twists of faith, uh, of, of fate, um, were incredibly um, interesting. To, to to truly understand, comprehend, and, and research leading uh, leading towards the book. Have you stayed in contact with those people? Yes, I'm getting to know them. Oh. Um, the people I, I got to know in recent years, and they've built incredible families um, and communities uh, here in the states, and it has been a great experience to get to know them. Oh, cool. <laughs> so are, are they? Um, uh, Cousins mostly. Yeah, second cousins, um, second cousins, third cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, with with DNA and with the wealth and breadth of of digitization of past documents, it's very easy to place um, people on on this huge family tree, um, and it's pretty incredible to learn the the bits and bytes of information, experiences, stories. Um, that each part of the family remembers or managed to pass from one generation to the next to create this fuller picture of, of life a century ago uh, for this family. Wow. <laughs> one, I keep thinking of another question. <laughs> um, how did your grandfather feel about you moving to the U.S.? Because he stayed in Israel, right? Yes. Um, We had a very close relationship, and he um, he was very proud of my educational and business accomplishments, and he would have supported me any decision I made, uh, any life decision I made. He was very happy that I was here in the States because going back to his survival um, point of view or perspective, he would never put, like metaphorically, all of his eggs in one basket. It's always good that you have different family members living in different places because if the worst were to happen, you always know that you sort of have a hedging strategy. So that was fundamentally representative of, of his thought. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, um, he was concerned about the direction that Israel was heading. Uh, and he himself, before making the decision to marry and move to Israel in the late 1940s, had considered moving to the States. So that was for him always the path not taken. He was very happy with his life in Israel, with the amazing family that he built, friends, community, business. Um, but he was he was happy and proud that we found our path here. Our listeners may have noticed we didn't talk much about the sabotage aspect of Alexander's story. That's because uh, we know, listener, you'll enjoy reading it for yourself. So, Oren, please tell the audience how to access your website, where to find your books, any information you have um, like that. So the book the book is available um, in practically all the major um, online bookstores such as Barnes and Nobles, Amazon, 
or through goodreads.com. You can also um, go into your favorite bookstore and ask them to order the book. They can do it. They will do it gladly um, and swiftly. If you want to um, contact me or access additional materials, um, you can log into www.apprenticeofbuchenwald.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you, you Steve. Thank you, Becky. <laughs> you bet. I would love to hear people's thoughts, uh, comments, and reactions after reading the book. And you can contact me directly uh, with the contact link on the website. Okay. Perfect. Oren Schneider, thank you so much for your time for this interview. Um, what a story. And uh, as good as it is, we hope that kind of thing never happens again. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Becky. It's been a pleasure. It has been. And I also thank you, and I thank our listeners, and want to say, remember, you too have a story. Be sure to live it to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.